from Romans chapter 12 to Romans chapter 16, and we're talking about love, that the calling card of the Christian faith, the calling card of the church is love. You know, in culture today, I think we kind of have become obsessed with power. We've become obsessed with strength. And yet what we find in Scripture is quite the opposite. What we find is this reversal through love. What we find is it's not strength, it's weakness that is elevated. And that's really a mystery of how in the world that works. I remember many years ago I was reading a book, Loving God by Chuck Colson, and he tells the story of Mother Teresa coming to Washington, D.C., So Mother Teresa comes to the United States, and they go pick her up at the airport, and this long caravan of black limousines are taking her back to Washington, D.C. And she says, take me to your poor. Take me to the inner city of Washington, D.C. And and this is a change of plans. They had prepared a reunion in Washington, D.C. for Mother Teresa, and she wanted to go to the inner city to meet the poor and got out of the car limousine and wanted to walk and meet the poor strength true strength biblical strength is demonstrated in the act of being willing to be weak by associating with people very different than yourselves taking on other people learning from other people humbling yourself all the things that we would consider to be weak vulnerable That's great strength. That's great power. That's what Mother Teresa demonstrated. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, that my power, Jesus says, is perfected in weakness. My power is perfected in weakness. That's where you'll see my power. You won't see my power in the power of somebody else. And that's why in verse 10, Paul says, when I am weak, then I am strong. It's really a mystery. How in the world does that happen? That's why in Romans chapter 15, the Apostle Paul says this to us. So if you have a Bible, I encourage you to take a look at Romans chapter 15 with me as we continue from chapter 14, this idea that the community of faith is made up of both weak and strong, and that there's a relationship between those that are weak in their faith and those that are strong in their faith, not an inferior, superior kind of view. Not one is bad, one is good. It's just that some are very young in their faith and some have a mature faith that's developed. And in the development of that faith, they have left behind some of the things that have bound them, whether it's a ritual, a law, or a way of practice. They've been able to get beyond that and find Christ in faith and experience this freedom in a relationship with Jesus, and they become strong in that way. That's strong faith. Weak faith, new, early in development. That's what Paul's talking about. And it's this place where, like school children who go off to school, as I said last week, with their lunch bags and their backpacks, and they head off to school, and they, they learn the rules early in life. Because that's what they need to learn is how to obey. And they learn these rules and they live with a lot of structure. And at some point they grow up and mature 
and they don't have those anymore. They're able to make those decisions for themselves. And Paul's saying that's the picture of the Christian life as well. But the church is made up of people that have a lot of rules, that follow a lot of rules, that have religious backgrounds, that come from different places, and those that don't have those backgrounds. And we are to learn from one another, grow from one another, help one another. That's the body of Christ. It's all about understanding one another. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 15 these words. Now, we who are strong ought to bear the weakness of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification. That is the building up. We're always to build up others. For even Christ did not please himself, as is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Now, may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Therefore, verse 7, accept one another just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. And the rest of chapter 15, 1 to 13 talks about how God is honoring both the Jew and the Gentile in the context of the church. Early in the church development, the church was made up of two totally different groups of people, two totally different cultural backgrounds, two religious backgrounds, two races of people the Jew and the Gentile. The Jew came from a very strict background of following the law and following the Old Testament, following a guide, a set of guidelines that determined their faith in their relationship with God. Gentiles, many of them came from diverse religious cults and experiences or philosophical points of views or no religion whatsoever where there weren't a lot of rules and religions, rules and restrictions, and they were free to do whatever they wanted. And now there's a blending of two different races, two different cultures, two different religious backgrounds in the body of Christ. And Paul says, Romans chapter 15, verse 1, you who are strong, bear up those that are weak. And the primary idea here, the key idea of this passage is to bear up. Bear up one another. That's what Paul's saying. Now, I want to invite Paul up, Paul Cody up in a second here, because I want to talk about, I want to talk about this idea of bearing up and what it actually means, because it's a very, very important word. You see that in verse, verse 1 of chapter 15. And it literally means to stand along someone else. It's, it's to set aside your own personal agenda and preferences, your own freedom in Christ, your own personal ability to kind of express your faith the way you like to express your faith, coming from your background, your cultural background, your religious background, and bearing up, which literally means to come alongside and lift up and encourage and bring alongside yourself somebody very different than yourself. Now that is the challenge of the church today. That we are to cross those barriers and join with one another. How do we do that? I mean, what's that really look like? I mean, practically, 
for you and I sitting in this church today, as I talked about the urban ministries in Los Angeles, and here we are in the South Bay, how do we even cross some of the cultural barriers, the race barriers, the religious backgrounds and barriers that might be barriers, but maybe they're not barriers. Maybe they're just opportunities for us to meet and engage people very different than ourselves. So I asked Paul Cody to come up, and Paul's going to share a little bit about his own life and his journey of faith, and a little bit about how this really works out in New York as you look at a very diverse culture in Manhattan today. And very much like Los Angeles, coming from different backgrounds, religious backgrounds, different people, and your ministry is to the youth of all of Manhattan. How do we bear up one another and encourage one another and become of the same mind within Manhattan, within the South Bay, within Los Angeles, and in the world for the church today? You know, one oh, you of got the things, it. is it on? Yeah. Oh, okay. One of the things that I have thought often about is anything that is not informed by Scripture, we shouldn't talk about. Um, if the scripture, if God's word is not addressing our perspective, our ideologies, and our thought process, then what we ought not talk about it from across the pulpit if scripture doesn't inform our thinking. And so one of the things I'd say just as we open this dialogue and this conversation is, is that, you know, most of uh, we think about um, fights, and there are fights of many kinds, fights w between siblings, uh, some of us. Uh, who are lucky, are lucky, have not had a lot of these arguments with spouses, but, you know, we know that's a reality of life, and we, and we have them, and we think a lot about fights, and those things kind of create distance, and, and the things that really start fights are, are different philosophical thought processes or disagreements about things that erect themselves to separate a relationship, right? And so those things that you allow to creep in, they are automatically placed there, and as the, the stronger they get, uh, the more they have the propensity to separate the relationships that create divides. And so if you would look at, even at the Tower of Babel experience, the Lord confounds all their languages because together they were thinking about something um, that transcended uh, what God wanted them to think about at the time, and so when he confounds the language, the goal was not for every language and every race to stay split, but what the enemy did was get in between that and caused everybody to remain split. So that when, when, when uh, Paul comes and he says, there's no Jew or Greek, there's no bond or free, we're all one in Christ, what he's doing is trying to reconcile what got ruined at the Tower of Babel. One of the things that we, we talk, that Scripture talks about is um, the weapons of our warfare. And he says the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds and casting down every imagination that exalts itself before Christ. One of the things when we talk about race and gender um, and ideology and theology and experience that we really deal with is it is our imagination right? It's our imagination that informs our reality instead of reality informing our imagination. Does that, does that make sense? And so when, um, when your imagination informs your reality, then we begin to think things about one another that are absolutely positively not true, and they're uneducated and they're uninformed, which is why the Lord asks us to pull down those strongholds. Well, how do you pull down 
those strongholds of race and religion and gender and ethnicity, how do you pull those things down? Well, part of it is through education. Everybody say education, right? It is education, how you educate yourself through the scriptures, um, a thorough exploration of what God is saying historically over time. I've always said this, that anything you do consistently over time yields transformation, right? If you want anything to be transformed, a marriage relationship, a family relationship, a business relationship, or a mindset, do something new consistently over time, and at the end of that process, you'll get a transformation that you did not uh, anticipate or plan for in the beginning. So Todd has talked a little bit about uh, this notion of how we love one another. Uh, the scripture outlines, it says, uh, there are many ways that we could think people would know that we're Christians, but the scripture identifies one. He says, we will know, people will know that we are Christians, that we are labeled by, that we are labeled by Jesus by the love we have for one another. And that is the only way that a, a dying world begins to look and see a perspective of Jesus is only through the lens of how we love one another. What is love? Love is, uh, love is benefiting someone else at the expense of yourself, right? That is the real definition of love. If you're going to love somebody well, you have to be willing to put you down and pick them up. And so when Todd talks about bearing people up, I think of bearing up as not only as walking alongside, but getting underneath the person and putting the weight of who they are on your shoulder so that you have the opportunity to understand who they are, how they think, how they live, what makes them tick in a way that allows you to enter into their life in a way that you could not have without that type of experience. Um, again, I, I, I'm going to try this one more time. Uh, I grew up in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Now, when I was in the beach service, I, I got lucky there was somebody from Iowa at the beach service. I was actually shocked. Um, um, I grew up in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, and I was less than uh, 10% of our, of, our, our, of our demographic. There were 7%, hasn't changed too much, 7% people of color in the state of Iowa. In my graduating class, there were 498 graduates. Uh, there were four folks of color, two black, one uh, Latino, and one Asian in my graduating class. And so, uh, growing up on one side of the tracks in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, I learned two things. I learned how to mistrust white people, and I learned how to fight. Um, and I became that angry dude because I never trusted anyone that was white was authentically going to help me in a way that benefited my life. I was always skeptical because all I heard growing up was the N-word thrown at me every time I turned around. I heard it more than, more than I heard the word the and and. That's how frequently I heard that in my, in my experience. And so I began to distrust and distance myself from anyone who was not uh, who was not African-American because I had significant trust issues because my experience was uninformed, right? The only information I had at the time was uh, the experience I had of being called the N-word consistently over time. And it wasn't until I had two encounters, one with um, a history teacher who actually just randomly began to walk beside me and saw kind of my love for history 
and begin to walk with me and spend time with me after class and walk down the halls with me. It was the weirdest thing in the world because as a high school student, the one person you don't walking, be, walking beside you is a teacher or a principal. <laughs> That's not really helpful to you in your high school career. Your dating career, your, your street cred, you have none when you have teachers and principals walking beside you. But yet this guy walked beside me a lot, and then I had a friend, his name was Warren Valena. And uh, I, I, had, I was the oldest of, the oldest of six, um, single-parent household, um, scrapped for everything I had, and really felt like no one could relate to my experience until I spent a lot of time with Warren Valena. And Warren Valena, I spent every weekend at his house. You would think I spent every weekend at his house because I needed him, but it was because he needed me. His dad was a raging alcoholic, and every weekend he would come into the house um, in a drunken stupor on a late Friday night, but early Saturday morning, the first thing he did was to get up and pick a fight and try to beat up his son. And, but when I was there, he wouldn't beat up his son. So I caught on to that, and I began to stay the weekend with him so that he would not beat his son. But it, until that experience, I had no rationale for understanding that someone else could share a similar experience. And one night, his dad came in, started trying to fight him despite me being there. He picked up, Warren picked up an aluminum bat and went in his dad. If I had not been there and grabbed that bat, he would have killed his dad that night. But that opinion was uninformed. I thought everybody who was white had it well. And, and it was only poor black people who didn't have what they needed. And then I figured out very shortly that other people struggled with what they needed too. But my perspective was too narrow to take in what that life experience really looked like. I would say as we talk about race, it always boils down most of the time um, to uh, Latino, black, and white, right? But I think that's a narrow, uh, a narrow lens and scope of what this scripture talks about when we talk about bearing one another up. We have diversity in religion. We have diversity in race. We have uh, diversity in culture. We have diversity um, in gender. We have diversity in sexuality. And all of those genders, all of those uh, differences, all of that diversity has to be approached the same way. And, and Jesus says it this way. Paul says it this way in the passage. He said, you've got to love one another, accepting one another the way that Christ loved and accepted you. Flaws and all, all of our imperfections, Christ says, it's okay. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to know it all, but I will accept you no matter where you are. Now, and then I'll hand it back to Todd. What does accepting look like, right? Accepting, uh, we think about acceptance as it could be, we could think of it as um, is, is a great gesture to accept. But when you look at it in the dictionary, it really isn't just a great gesture. It is when you accept something, you are doing two things. You are wholeheartedly agreeing with what you're receiving, and you are joyfully accepting the person that you receive as a gift and a unique experience that comes from the Father. And so what we're being challenged to do is accept one another in a new way that we actually may not have been challenged to do, or when we were challenged to do it, there was a little hesitation, and so we didn't accept it the way that we could have. 
And so scripture, when we talk about what we do in New York, my biggest challenge is diversity. I, I know some would say that is absolutely the most, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. That is obvious, right? Uh, Eight million people, um, all the diversity, it, they talk about Man, uh, Manhattan as the island where the world came to live. And so diversity means something totally different in New York. And so when I started ministry in New York, uh, I had a lot of staff, I had a lot of ministry to kids of color, um, and, and so we were working with a lot of kids in Brooklyn and kids of color in Manhattan and in the Bronx, and then the Lord started to do something different in our ministry. And what started to happen was, I began to be, get challenged by friends that I had about uh, what our ministry looked like. They said, you've challenged us on one end to make sure that our picture is multicultural, but on your end, your picture is not multicultural. What are you going to do about that? And so I began a process and a journey in my hiring, right, in my hiring process to make sure that diversity was a hallmark of who we were. So if you were to look at a map, if I were to flash a map right now, you'd see 60% of our staff are African-American or Latino, 40% are white. 55% uh, of our staff are women, um, and another 20% of our staff are over the, I would say, over the age of 40. And so we really worked hard, but when the rubber met the road was in places like this when we would come to worship. Now, I am uh, not only African-American, but by law, so to speak, I am Pentecostal by nature, right? <laughs> Pentecostal, charismatic, and, and so that has always been my worship experience. So so goes uh, the character of the leader, the character of the mission follows. And so the character of our mission was charismatic, uh, not quite Pentecostal, but very uh, into how we worship the Lord. And we had a few people who came to me after a staff meeting and said, that's great worship, but I don't feel included. And I had a choice to make at that point. And that choice was to push them away and say they'll get over it. Or to sit back, hear their perspective, and welcome them to the table the way I wanted to be welcomed. And that was good at that point. And then we had another stretch where we had some of our, our white suburban staff who came and said, hey, we don't feel included either. And that began a metamorphosis and a transformation uh, in our ministry that has followed us where our mission unit of staff, no matter uh, how diverse our kids are, uh, we really have a family feel with our staff because we've done, I would say, and still doing the hard work that comes with bearing one another up with intentionality. Yeah, yeah. And I would say, Paul, what I, and I want to give a, a personal, um, in some insight to that, having joined Paul and his staff at a retreat, Denise and I were able to come and speak, but we, we, were, we were given an education and invited into your culture of the way in which you worship the Lord and how you do ministry. And we learned a lot from that as well. But what I hear Paul saying, this is not an issue of racism. Let's be really clear here. Right. This is not what we're talking about. We're talking about understanding across these lines, whether it's race or religion, backgrounds. That's what we're talking about. That's what Paul's saying. He's dealing with people, both Jew and Gentile, that are coming from different backgrounds, different races. And what he's trying to do is unify them 
by helping them understand one another, and that's key. And what yeah. you said, Paul, I agree with. I totally agree with the idea of bearing up. It's to draw someone in. You take them in. You, you, you go to someone, and then you bear them up means literally you enter into their world. You take the time to do that. And I remember when we were with you and your staff, I felt like we learned how to worship in a whole new way. We learned where a lot of your motivation in, in ministry comes from, from the lives of the staff that you have in their backgrounds. And as they told their stories, backgrounds of poverty and homelessness, abuse, alcohol abuse, lots of different backgrounds. What we learned is these young people are serving students out of a cultural background that was kind of given to them by the Lord. Christ enters into that, and then there's this amazing compassion, and there's this unique ability to go onto these campuses around Manhattan and, and impact lives because they can understand what they're dealing with. They understand what it's like to go to school without a lunch. They understand that they may have been beaten that morning or that they're going back to a fearful situation that night or they're not hearing that they're loved. And so certain practices come out of that, certain beliefs about Jesus and about their walk in faith mm -hmm. and the way you worship and the way you talk and the way you encourage one another, the way you accept differences was all new. And, and I feel like I entered into that and learned, learned from you and learned from your staff. And those are the kinds of experiences that we need to keep putting ourselves into. The practical here, mm -hmm. the real practical is what kind of situations are you allowing God to push you into? And it's, it's right here in this community. It starts here, doesn't it? Yeah. It, I would say, you know, I, I had this thing. Um, I, when I grew up, I was kind of a hustler. I did a lot of stuff. And so uh, I waited for it to snow, and I waited for people's grass to grow. Uh, because I knew at that point I was getting ready to get, put some money in my pocket. And so whenever it snowed, you'd have a, I'd have a shovel on one shoulder. I'd push a snowblower in the other one. Um, and whenever it was a summer, I had a rake on my shoulder, and I had, I had uh, a lawnmower out in front of me. And uh, because I knew I was going to make money, my natural first step out the door was, I was going to the neighbor and the neighbor after that and the neighbor after that and across the street to cut their grass to rake their yard because I knew I was going to get money. So before I walked out the door, my mom would stop me and say, no, 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 you start right here. You cut our grass first before you go cutting anybody else's grass, right? And so really the point being, the reason I share that illustration is, is because really as much as a blessing as the river has been uh, to Young Life in New York City uh, and in Los Angeles, you have uh, a neighborhood, you have a home that requires your attention first, right? There are communities and people, uh, whether they're people of color, whether they're surfers or skateboarders, um, or whether they are uh, recently uh, released for, from prison, um, whether they are same-sex attracted or transvestites, whatever you see, like, there is a mission field of someone different that is literally outside your front door. <clears throat> One that Jesus would call you and me to reach right what's in front of us. I think someone said it earlier, like, it, the, the chore relationally. Relationships are the network for life. Yeah. 
And anything that you get can be won or lost in the context of a relationship. If you have a good relationship, people talk about um, jobs and unemployment. It's not that people need, it's not that they need money, what they need is a job. Well, if you give them access to a job, then that gives them money. So the greatest gift you can give anybody is access. So what kind of accesses are we providing for people who are right here uh, in, in our circle, in our neighborhood, in our sphere of influence? Um, I am blessed by the fact that Todd is on our board, and he uh, comes and he visits, and uh, he and Denise and a few other, uh, I mean, Brittany has been my admin uh, for three years. That's about to change thanks to a couple of circumstances and people that are to my right. Um, <laughs> uh, but you, you, I'm so blessed to have uh, his support. But man, if, if his support of me stopped, so that you all could do more locally, I'd, do, I'd agree to it in a heartbeat. Because what needs to happen here in your neighborhood, in your community, amongst the people that you interact with every day, that you see every day, that you rub shoulders with, that you have coffee with, right? Th those people need the same Jesus that we're talking about in here. And it doesn't matter what they look like. I am a person, I know what it's like to be the angry black man, trust me. I know what it's like to be the, ad, the activist, and I still have some of that in me. Trust me. Um, those things still occur, but the discussion is so much broader than what our race and our ethnicity looks like. Because the kingdom, when it comes down to it, is going to have nothing to do with color. It's going to have everything to do with the blood that's painted on the doorpost of a heart. And so if the doorpost of the heart is not painted with the blood, it doesn't matter what we're doing anyway. And so part of what we have to begin to focus on is not just what and how we're doing it in New York. It really is answering the question, what the Lord has called you to do here. And it is going to cost you something. Let's just be honest and be clear. It's going to cost you something. It's going to cost you time and energy. And you're going to be uncomfortable in some of the conversations that you're about to have. I would say I wrote down, and it keeps switching on me, four things that it's going to require. Transparency, humility, uh, joyfulness, and, ref and, 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 and being reflective. Why? You've got to reflect on your past so that you can begin before the Lord to pick out your imaginations, right? You've got to enter into it with humility uh, so that you are not cast, so you're not painting a picture that you actually know it all. Um, transparency, because in order for someone, a relationship, everybody gives. And so you can't ask someone to be transparent, but you're not willing to be transparent either, right? And then joyfully, it is accepting people for who they are, not just for who they are. It is because how Christ sees them and how Christ accepts you. And if you can embody and embrace all of those things, it really doesn't matter who you see when you come out, when you walk out the door. Your perspective, um, your perspective will be different. I said this to Todd as we were walking in. We had um, this weird encounter at the beach this morning. Um, as, after we talked about this, a guy came onto the beach and he said to me, he said, you know what happens when uh, white people and black people meet in L.A.? And he showed me his knuckles. And I said, yeah, I know they fight. I said, that's not new. That's, I mean, that's not new. 
geographically, that doesn't just happen in L.A. Did you not just hear me tell you where I was from? Um, I said, but the deal is, outside of Christ, that's going to happen all day, every day. Your knuckles are going to get bloody. You're going to fight for your survival, for your identity, for respect. It's only until Christ comes in and intervenes does everything change. And this is the last thing I'll say. True, real true love exercises authority and gives away power. That's what true love looks like. It exercises authority, the authority that God has given to pass that along, the authority to share your life, but it often gives up power. And power is the hardest thing in any relationship for us to give up. If we're married, we know what our first few years of marriage looks like. We spend a lot of time trying to figure out who has the power to do what. Now, I know that's why everybody's laughing because you know I'm telling the truth. But that's what it comes down to. But when you really begin to love one another, it is I exercise authority, but I don't have to wield power. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. Miroslav Volf once said these words about the Christian faith. He said that we are a lot like Abraham. We're called to depart from our family and our people, but to remain a pilgrim. He said that every Christian must get distance from his or her own culture, yet stay connected to it. Mm-hmm. So get some distance, but stay connected. See, the world thinks the answer is tolerance. The world says tolerance is basically not judging anyone, accepting all, and allowing everybody to do what they want to do. And so we've got this viewpoint that basically it's massive individualism. Mm -hmm. You do whatever you want. I can't say anything to you. You can't say anything to me. Just do whatever you want to do in the world. That's what the world says. The Christian faith says something radically different. Stay connected to the culture and the values and the development of your faith that you have and your background that you come from. Be honest about that, but also separate yourself. Disconnect from that in order to grow and then become a pilgrim and learn from others. So at the end of the day, Douglas Moo says, take the responsibility to uphold the rights of others to be different. Mm -hmm. How about that? You uphold the right of others to be different. So cross a few lines in your life. Go somewhere. Go, Go meet up. Go check out Angel's Ministry in Los Angeles. I hear we have like this urban young life deal going on in San Pedro. I mean, it's close. Someone came up and said there's a new Dream Center Long Beach. There are so many opportunities. We're going to continue to stay focused on the Martinells. See, we take care of not judging, but loving and accepting, learning, growing, bearing up one another here, and then we go out. And we become kind of community that demonstrates love by upholding the right of others to be different. And at the end of the day, that's what the makeup of the body of Christ looks like. Is it not? So the question this morning for us as we listen to this and listen from Paul and hear from his background and study of, of, of life and ministry and the word and what Paul's telling us here in Romans chapter 15, what are we gonna do? What is the next move for us? What does that look like? And it may mean 
ending maybe a judgmental thought about somebody else who comes from a totally different background than yourself. See, there's no more judgment, right? We've, we've, we, we don't have the right anymore to judge because we never had it. That's God's job. <clears throat> See, we think we're supposed to go into the world and convince, convince people that they're sinners or convict them of sin. It's not our job. It really isn't. The Holy Spirit is the one who brings about an awareness of sin in the world, not us. What we're to do is we're to go into the world and love people for Jesus, bring them into a relationship with Jesus, and allow the Holy Spirit to bring them into a new understanding of who they are in Christ, a new identity and begin to abandon some of the things that they've been holding on to that are keeping them from God. That's, that's our job. We lose judgment. We start loving and accepting. We start moving into other cultures and understanding other people. All of a sudden, what happens is we begin to see us be go, begin to grow. And, and one of my points as I was thinking about this is that this is beneficial to you. You know, yesterday, I was thinking, I'm going to go paddle surfing. I've, I've been in the water all winter. I really want to go just get away and do that. And yet, I made a commitment to Paul. I'm going to go hear Paul. And I entered into something. I drove out to Azusa Pacific, and oh my goodness, what an amazing investment of my time. Now, there's times to go paddling. There's times to go for a walk. There's times to right. go to do those things. But you know what I'm saying. When you do those kinds of things... There's a benefit to your soul. God gets a hold of you and begins to change you, and you think differently, and you're more excited about what God's doing, and it energizes you, and it fills you. It empowers you, and you walk away sometimes from that going, oh, my goodness, what am I missing out on? I want more of that. And it communicates value. Uh, it, you know, one of the ways that you, it, it's easiest to communicate value is to show up in an unexpected place um, and an unexpected time uh, to a person that you're in relationship with. And just very simply showing up at, at that conference spoke volumes and was valuable to me. That I, because I knew what that room was going to look like. And so there were 2,000 majority of uh, uh, African-American, Latino, and some white folks in there who had been doing work in urban ministry, but I knew that was different uh, for Todd, and yet he was there and embraced it in a way uh, that communicated great value to yeah. me. Yeah. So our encouragement is, is that as we continue to walk this out together, that you would kind of take this journey with us. Yeah. Well, let's, let's worship together as we close. <laughs>